Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all of the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. While I've got your attention, I'm really excited to announce that Covered Press is now offering its journalist story management software for free for the first 500 journalists who sign up. As a journalist, I know how difficult it can be keeping track of all my stories, invoices, and communications with editors. Covered Press streamlines the whole journalism process and keeps you organized. Sign up at CoveredPress.com today to get one of the 500 free spots available. And now, enjoy our podcast. Can we say something about the people running for office and the ways in which they describe themselves? Do we know if the people running for office demographically reflect the demographics of their community? These are all really, really interesting questions that you can't really answer without having the data. If your community just had an election, there's a good chance all of the candidates had websites. But what happens to those websites when the election's over? And where does all that data go? I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Melody Kramer is the Director of Communications at the Carolina Population Center at UNC Chapel Hill, a former guest of our podcast. Melody recently launched a new project archiving election websites through UNC Greensboro. Melody, welcome back to It's All Journalism. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. So, you know, we spoke about, well, actually, because it was back in 2015, and, and you were heading out of Washington, D.C., going down to North Carolina. And, you know, at that time, you were writing about putting the public back into public media membership. So what have you been doing down in the Carolinas since then? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've lived here about seven years. When I moved, I was actually, I had just done a Neiman Fellowship up at Harvard, and I was looking at membership models in public media and how to engage the public in different ways throughout the public media ecosystem. And for that project, I talked to a lot of people who work in libraries and a lot of people who work in civic tech. And I became really interested in kind of the civic tech world. And so when I moved here, I was initially working for a little tech team in the federal government called 18F. And it was a term appointment in the Obama administration where we worked on uh, fixing websites and getting content up to speed and kind of bringing some websites, you know, further along digitally and working with longtime federal employees who were really, really great knowledge stewards and we kind of brought the like technical expertise and worked with them to you know, improve their websites. And that ended. And I took a position with the Wikimedia Foundation for a few years where I, I worked on audience research and development. And that was fascinating because Wikipedia is the fifth largest website in the world. It was working at a scale that I've never worked at before or since. And it was just touching almost every person who touches the internet in the world and thinking about how they how they use that and how they process information and how to reach people who might not have high broadband and things like that. And then I decided that I didn't like working remotely. <laughs> I applied for jobs locally and the job that I have now, I lead communications for a research group at UNC Chapel Hill, which is about 80 people who study populations. So everything from, we're doing a lot of COVID work. We're doing a lot of work looking at maternal mortality, there are people who study the aftermath of natural disasters. There are people who study college students, just basically anything at the population level. And within that, I also work for an applied demography group that helps people better understand North Carolina. So I love it. It kind of combines all of my interests, 
it's translating research material for the public and policymakers. The people are great. They're subject matter experts in their fields. I, I work across 17 different departments at UNC along some, some really, really smart people. And as part of being a UNC employee, I can also get my graduate degree for free. And so I'm in library school at UNC Greensboro, and I attend that at night. Since we last talked, I got married and had two kids. Well, congratulations about, on that. We talked a little about, about be, that before we started recording. So tell me a little about this thing that you've developed for UNC Greensboro. You know, how'd you come up with the idea and, and what was the problem you were trying to address? So I'm taking a class right now called Community Informatics. And the idea of the class is to basically think about our digital world and to think about ways to help people better understand something digitally or help them learn to do something digitally. And basically we're examining the infrastructure around that. So as part of the class, everybody had to design a semester long project with some aspect of teaching people a digital skill and of gathering people together to complete something digitally. And I have always been really interested by archives and especially digital archives. The web is very ephemeral. Things on the web do not stay for a long time. There was a study several years ago that I believe a large percentage of links on Supreme Court briefings were no longer accessible because the links had rotted and the websites just didn't exist anymore. And so the, the links that the Supreme Court had linked to no longer worked. And a recent study last year looked at the New York Times and found that over the past 15 years or so, about 25% of the links no longer work that were linked out from the New York Times. So this is a really, really big problem. And I was doing some work earlier this year as a side project, looking at some local news organizations in North Carolina that were kind of funky and maybe connected to some political organizations. And as part of that work, I was trying to find websites for local political candidates and I couldn't find them. For the same reason, they had disappeared after local elections. You know, no more contributions are coming in after the election. If you lose, your website basically goes dark and it goes dark shortly after election day. But there's a lot of great material on those websites. And so I decided to kind of launch this project to teach people about how to archive things digitally and also see how many local political websites we could scoop up and throw to the Internet Archive, which is an archiving organization based in San Francisco, but is is trying to get as many links as possible to basically create copies of those websites so that we can use them, so that they can be cited, so that we can examine them in bulk. That's the project. The project is to basically scoop up every local election website that exists and send them to the Internet Archive so that they can be archived. But it's a really, really tricky problem to solve for a, a number of reasons. I'm trying to understand a couple of different things here. And obviously, you know, as, as the Internet grew and people were sort of moving away from paper and there's so many different types of records that are put online digitally you know, I think this there was a sort of this feeling that this stuff won't go away. This stuff will be there. What is it that's sort of leading to the decay? Is it that websites are no longer supported? Is it that, you know, people deliberately, well, we don't want to keep this around and, and it just goes away? Or, or some other, are there other factors that play into this? There are a variety of factors for why internet sites disappear. And I'll be honest, I don't think I'm going to cover all of them. But let's say your organization is scooped up by another organization and they look at your website and they decide to get rid of half of your links. That often happens in journalism organizations where a new publisher comes in and might want to unpublish certain stories that were written in the past. There's a researcher at UNC named Deborah Dwyer, and that's actually her dissertation research, looking at people who unpublish the news and how, how that affects the ecosystem. So that's one reason, you know, if you just stop paying for a domain, 
those websites no longer exist. In the case of political candidates, you know, there are a lot of people who run for elected office in the United States. I think a Pew study showed that about 2% of people across the country run for elected office, which is a really large number of people. And most of them are not elected. So if you're not elected, you're probably not going to maintain your tenant website. You know, people develop websites at certain jobs or institutions that they're affiliated with, and then they leave. At my institution, UNC Chapel Hill, they routinely clean up websites of students who have long since graduated. And so if material was on them, that just doesn't exist anymore on the web that we can access. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. that is pretty amazing. I mean, you don't even think about it because you're, you're always moving forward and creating more content. And I can see how that could be sort of problematic with newsrooms that have a lot of archives, you know, how, how they're going to make sure that they maintain those. But, you know, why did you choose political uh, websites over something else, over, you know, university files or government information or something? That's a really good question. I, I chose local political websites because I was doing this project, which I'm still doing. I'm, I'm looking into a, a local news organization that is local to me that looks like it's being run by people who are very, very active in politics, and some of them are politicians themselves. And I was really, really interested in people who run for town council in my tiny little town of 19,000 people. And I couldn't find anybody's website because I knew that they had existed for elections and they were often referenced in material that I was finding, but the websites themselves didn't exist. And when I had the opportunity to take this class, I did some more research and I found that the Library of Congress actually archives all presidential websites. There's something called the end of term presidential harvest where they, they basically scoop up every website from the last administration before the new president takes office. They also scoop up every governor website, every Senate web, senator website, and every House of Representative website. So they kind of cover state and federal, but there's no large scale project to scoop up local. And part of the like tricky thing about this problem is it's really, really hard to put together a list of every candidate running for office in the United States. So this is actually, it, it started as an archive problem, but I'm realizing it's also a, a data problem um, in that nobody has a data set of every single candidate running for office this upcoming November. That just doesn't exist. I know we've done a podcast about data sets and, and standardizing sort of data sets and collecting information about crime results. For, for example, you know, trying to report hate crimes across the country and, and discovering that, you know, different states, different localities, you know, record that data differently or they record different aspects of it so that it's not necessarily a one-on-one -on -one equivalent. Is there a way for, I mean, does, does there need to be some sort of standard or does there need to be some sort of, I don't know, best practices that, that have to be out there? You know, there are some projects, Derek Willis, who was most recently at ProPublica and just took a job as a lecturer at the uh, University of Maryland, he runs a project called Open Elections, where basically for the past, I think, six or seven years, he's been sending people out to physical election offices across the country to make sure that they get the ballot results so that they can create like an accurate data set of, of ballot results for different elections and have, have an idea of all of the different elections that are taking place in the United States. The census actually does a, a census of elected officials in years that end in two and seven, I think. So there are counts of people who are currently in office, but it's much, much harder to come up with the list of people running for office because there's a real variety of the ways in which states put out that data. So the state that I live in, North Carolina, is actually really far ahead of the pack in this area. If you go to the North Carolina Board of Elections website, they have a CSV file. They have all of the candidates running in this upcoming November election. There are 2,200 people running for elected office. 
in 2021 in North Carolina for things ranging from school board to county commissioner to sheriff, all sorts of local offices. Most of them have websites. If they don't have a website, they at least have a Facebook page. So North Carolina has that. But if, if you go to other state websites, you might be looking at a PDF for each individual race and have to extract those names and put them together. So oftentimes the information is available digitally, although I can't say for sure that all of it is available digitally. But from what I can gather, there's just a, a variety of methods in which states share that data with the public. And it really, really varies from state to state. And there are some projects that basically scoop it up at the precinct level. There's a project called the Voter Information Project, which is run out of Chicago. And they basically try to scoop up as much as they can. And I believe that their project powers the Google Civics API, which is basically the thing that when you Google, like, you know, election day, near close to election day through Google, you'll see like who's running for office where you live. But you know, that data set exists if you can type in an address. So I would basically have to type in an address in every precinct in the United States to get a list of every candidate in the United States. And even if I have the candidate names, I would then have to look up their website because that information is not currently collected. If you succeed and you get all of the candidate information from across the country for, for 2021, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, so every every day I'm actually sending uh, bulk data that I collect to the Internet Archive and they're already ingesting it. And we've collected about 5,000 websites so far. And they're not only archiving those websites, they're archiving every link that goes out from the, those websites. So it's about 5,000 links, but over a million links in total from all of the links across all of the pages of those websites, which is great. But that's really a drop in the bucket because, as I said earlier, there are 2,200 people running just in North Carolina. And the races that I've received so far through the website are predominantly in, you know, larger population cities in the United States. So Charlotte and Durham and Raleigh and North Carolina are covered. Alamance County, which is the next county over, is not. Um, so I'm trying to think of ways to involve libraries or involve civic tech organizations or involve, you know, local community groups, the League of Women Voters, just people who are active civically within their community who might want to scoop up this information or are already doing so at the local level to inform the public about who's running for office, but has never, you know, doesn't know about digital editing, doesn't know, uh, I mean, archiving, doesn't know that you can, you can save these things and has never contributed to a project like this. So I, I'm in the process where I'm developing like a toolkit for libraries who want to share this with, you know, their publics, because really this is a very, very local project that just needs to be replicated a lot of times. And I think the library approach is probably a good idea because they're going to be certainly more in touch with the people who are accessing, you know, their their libraries locally and their and their local races. You mentioned one where you know people don't necessarily maybe have the the data skills to collect or organize this information, and then also, you know, in many rural states, there's not a lot of uh, broadband availability. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I I think that so I have two goals. One goal is. I think of kind of like civic activity as a continuum in the United States. And I think we often think of it as like you vote in an election and that's, you know, that's your civic activity or you participate in the census and that's your civic activity. But there are actually a series of things that you can do in between voting and participating in the census that kind of add to our democracy. And I think that, you know, even if people don't end up contributing to the project, but it encourages them to look up a candidate or the candidates running for office locally, you know, 2021 is not expected to have high turnout. It's not a presidential year. It's not an even numbered year. There are fewer races this year than in the future. And 
I don't expect to get every candidate website, but what I'm hoping to do is kind of understand the pain points this year so that if this project were to be replicated next year, 2022, when there are many more elections, maybe we have the infrastructure set up or maybe we have a framework where this this process becomes easier. This is a really, really tricky problem with all sorts of major, um, you know, I'm running into a lot of walls and that's great because I'm just documenting the walls that I run into and I email people and I say, you know, can you help me get this data set or can you help introduce me to so-and-so? And so so it's, it's basically like removing barriers from this process. So if it were to be replicated in the future, it might be easier for other people. Is the idea then, now that you've collected this, is it to, the idea is to go to the libraries or go to the Library of Congress and that there would be a system whereby people could could access it there or maybe remotely? So it's through the Internet Archive. The Internet Archive is a nonprofit based in San Francisco and they archive millions of websites, but they archive websites that people recommend that they archive. So they're, they don't just, you know, archive every, I think they do have crawlers that archive a lot of things, but if a website is only up for a couple of months, there's a good chance that their crawlers might miss that. And so it's both to, you know, scoop up as many of these websites as possible, but it's also to introduce people to the internet archive and the process of digital archiving um, and to introduce people to the idea of why that's important and why that might be important for their local communities. There are about 150 libraries across the United States who work directly with the internet archive in a program called Community Webs. And they basically have an internet archive account where they can create digital archives for their local community about their local history. So for example, um, there are some libraries who collect a lot of websites that have to do with like a hurricane. So if you're in in Louisiana and you're, you know, you live through a hurricane, you might be part of a project where you're trying to collect every kind of website that, that mentioned that hurricane. So it's a resource for people in the future. I'm suggesting to the libraries who are participating in that, could you add local political candidate websites to that because it does inform your local history. And it's also really useful for journalists, historians, political scientists, people who study linguistics, all, all sorts of different researchers are interested in this, this corpus as a whole. Like we can, we can think of, you know, you're probably not looking up individual candidate websites for candidates who live outside of your geographic area. But what I find very interesting, and I think what journalists find very interesting, if you, if you have the complete data set, you know, at least some kind of sample of a, of a data set, you can sort of like, you know, untangle questions like, are candidates using similar language in different parts of the country where, you know, maybe it suggests that they're receiving funding from a similar source? Can we say something about the people running for office and the ways in which they describe themselves? you know, do we know if the people running for office demographically reflect the demographics of their community? These are all really, really interesting questions that you can't really answer without having the data. Yeah. This seems like you're, you've identified a problem, a large problem, not just necessarily about political sites, but just, you know, data going away, websites disappearing. And, you know, through this sort of civic engagement, you're trying to sort of set up structures and best practices so that people are thinking about that and designing systems and including whatever they're doing it may not even be political but whatever it doesn't have to be political. It, yeah it doesn't have to be political so yeah. that, that sounds like an idea because when you present it it makes it almost seems like you're trying to swallow the ocean but in actuality what what you're trying to do is just trying to collect a bucket of water and yeah. you know that everybody collects their bucket of water too but you know it, it really if the end result of this project is that 
people across the country start to think about digitally archiving websites. If the end result of this project is a journalism organization picking up this work, I could see something like the AP having a nationwide project where, you, you know, you put people in every precinct. People are already helping on the ground with projects like that and just saying, you know, as you send us information about this candidate, send us the website. It's really easy to add this because some organizations are already collecting, you know, the candidate names and the candidate political party and the, the candidate platform. So adding the website to the information you're ingesting is not hard. And then it's really, really easy to send it to the Internet Archive. They have a website where I just bulk upload through a Google sheet every night, the new websites I collect, and it runs overnight and I just get them. You know, I, I could see an organization like the AP or ProPublica or, you know, these organizations that are nationwide and kind of already work with a lot of different people on projects or even just have, you know, Gannett, like something that has a network, would be able to do this project much more efficiently and probably much more systematically than a single person. But, you know, the single person is trying to find the pain points that help those organizations. I, I don't want to continue this project. I'd like to pass it off to an organization that has more resources. Could it be possible to, I mean, maybe this becomes part of a locality or a state's, you know, if you're signing up to run for an election, this is a step you have to take to ensure that that type of stuff happens. In which case you- That would be amazing. You, but need, I, I you think need that, to introduce laws and, and try yeah. to get, get that passed. Well, it's so variable. I mean, I think that you probably could do that in some states or some localities, but probably not others. And there's just so much variability across the country. And I've talked to a lot of election-related people for this project, and I've talked to a lot of library people for this project. This is a problem that election people have been trying to solve for a very long time. So having a sense of, every single person who's running for office in an election cycle and knowing something about them beyond their name is just a useful historical artifact. And, you know, I've talked to sociologists who want this data. I've talked to historians who want this data. I've talked to political scientists who would find this data interesting. Journalists, obviously. The other thing that I find so interesting is often people start at very local races before they run for higher offices. So, you know, following someone's trajectory from school board to House of Representatives would be really interesting to see how they describe themselves and what their platform was and just the way in which they advocate for themselves. And right now we can't do that if the school board website disappears. And you can see why maybe politicians, political parties might want to have that information, you know, at their fingertips. So when they somebody, you know, an opposing party puts forward a candidate, they're able to go in and do a little research and, you know, figure out who they're dealing with. It wouldn't surprise me if somebody's archiving this privately for political reasons, but I always tend to work with the public in mind, and that's kind of infused my work for the past 15 years. And I could set up an archive crawler and, you know, archive these websites and just store it on a couple of external hard drives and have it. But it's really something that the public should be able to access. It's civic information. It helps us better understand, like, the democratic process and you know, it's really, really easy for people to participate in the project because all you have to do is go to my the website that I set up and literally paste in the URL. And then it gets sucked into a Google sheet and the Google sheet goes to the internet archive. So I, I'm trying to reduce pain points for people who might not be very tech savvy and might, might have barriers for that. And I'm also saying to people, if you just have a list of websites, send them to me because, you know, if you for some reason have, I think I'm working right now with somebody who works for a civic tech organization in Utah. I think I'm going to get every candidate running for office in Utah because he has that data set. That's awesome. 
if you are listening out there and you have, you know, a bucket of candidate websites for whatever reason, send it to me. The only thing I'm going to do to it is send it to the internet archive and that's it. That's the entire project. It's actually, it's really simple. Okay. So ultimately, you know, you want to pass this on to somebody else or you through talking to libraries and other organizations like the, the League of Women Voters or newsrooms so that you don't have to be the one that, that runs this every night, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it makes more sense for an organization to be doing this work. You know, you have the infrastructure. It's a project that can be managed. You can probably get grant funding. I've talked to people in the library world who have suggested that I could get grant funding for this. I really like to raise these issues in the public consciousness and then find them good homes. So if I tried to see every project through that I think of, I would not have time for anything else. So I, I tend to launch them, get people interested, you know, understand the pain points. I have to write a paper for my class. So I'm going to make the paper public. The paper is going to be like, you know, what are the problems here? What, what works? What doesn't work? What do people find, you know, most useful in doing this work? And then I'm just going to put that on the internet and hope that it helps people. Well, hopefully it will. And hopefully other people will pick up on this. I really admire the outlook with which you pursue this. This is a problem you've noticed and it. Here's something that it was fixed. It would be, you know, something positive for society, for the public, if we could get this up and running. This is also true for news websites like city paper in Philadelphia website died. I mean, I, I have things that I've written for websites that no longer exist. And so as we start to lose more and more news organizations. We're also losing a lot of their digital content. There are people who look into what happens when we lose, you know, data visualizations. I spoke to somebody a long time ago who worked at AOL and told me that the news sections on AOL just basically disappeared. Like that doesn't exist anymore. And for the early 90s, mid 90s, like there's a lot of content on there that would be of great interest to a lot of people who are, are doing research and the more that we lose, the more that we can't really tell that story or, or better understand what has happened. This isn't the first time things like this have happened. I know that, like, for example, in, the, in television and in movies, when they started using video equipment and recording things by video as opposed to film, that eventually, you know, that degraded and, you know, they're able to sort of save you know, old film that may, may be damaged, but they can't do the same thing with video. So, you know, when everybody sort of jumps to the new technology, because this is going to be easier and it'll make it, you know, we'll be able to get more information and out there that doesn't necessarily mean it's, we should be banning these other methods. So you're not telling people to print out their websites, are you? No, but I mean, if, if that's the way that you want to archive it, like that's not such a bad way to go. Like I, in college, I worked in a rare books archive people came in to look at our stuff and it was letters from the 1800s on paper. Like that's actually not a bad way to archive if you have a really good printer and if you have a lot of ink and if, you know, if you, you know, can print 24 seven, that's, that's not a bad way to go. If, if you find a home for that and if somebody is a steward of that, like keeping it in your house doesn't really make a lot of sense. Donating that collection to a library actually, actually would be of value and of interest. But there are also ways to archive these things digitally. And what's nice about archiving them digitally is it also archives all of the links. So when the research project was done, looking at the links from the New York Times, it wasn't the New York Times URLs that had disappeared. It was the, the websites that the, the New York Times had linked out to. And we've all have plenty of stories that have outside links. And then, you know, maybe the story becomes less you know, complete, certainly, but, you know, less authoritative, perhaps. This is a fascinating discussion. Now, Melody, you said if people have 
this information that they should send it to you? I have a website. I mean, you can you can send me the link on Twitter. You can send me the link. I would prefer the website because that's, you know, it goes into a form and that that's there for me to handle. But if you have bulk data, if you have a CSV, if you for some reason have 20 websites, like just email me on melodycramer at Gmail. I will put them in my list. I will send them to the Internet Archive. I'm also trying to put them up on a GitHub repo so that everybody has access to all of these because I don't want people to think that I'm collecting this for any kind of purpose other than that I'm not. It's for a class pretty much on the up and up. But if people need the websites, they're all available. If other people would like to, you know, use them or archive them or do whatever they want with them. Okay. We'll include the link on our website with this podcast. Melody, thanks. It's been a great time catching up with you to and finding about this project that you just sort of did because A, it was a, an assignment and B, you know, <laughs> it was a B, it would be a good thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it was nice to have the assignment as a way to kind of give parameters around this because, <laughs> you know, it lights a little fire under your tush when you have deadlines. And I'm a 37-year-old graduate student. Like, I, I went back to school really late and I love library school. I feel like just the way that librarians and information people think about data and information is, is really beneficial to newsrooms. And there is a lot of crossover and I think there's a lot of opportunity for more. Okay. Excellent. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>